our first Property Matter show of the new year here on Dublin South FM. Uh, this month indeed marks the third of our, uh, the start of our third year of broadcasting for the industry news. So thank you to everybody for the support and engagement over the past two years. Uh, you can still contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Talon, and I'm delighted to be joined by regular guest on the show, Pat Davitt, CEO of iPab. Pat, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Carol. And indeed, congratulations on your two years airing at the moment. It's great. I, I know. Well done. Uh, you, you've been a frequent guest on the show, which we appreciate. Thank you so yeah. much. And to be honest, I'm so surprised that we're heading into our third year. And this is, of course, the first year that we're incorporating video into the uh, into the radio broadcast and podcasting elements. So um, we're really trying to make sure that we reach all of the industry members that we need to we need to um Reach so thank you and we always appreciate the support of IPAB and not just the support but actually the information because it has been such a it, it is it, property is always a a complex um it's always a, a complex sector and I think over the past ten months um the property industry much like the construction industry has been extraordinary in how it's risen to the challenges presented by the pandemic. Um, and, and the last time we spoke just before Christmas, we were coming out of a second lockdown. And now, as we start and kick off 2021, we're in the midst of a, a third and more severe lockdown. Um, so I, I'm delighted that you were able to join us today so you can help us actually interpret and get to grips with the new restrictions that uh, the property sector is subject to under this current phase of restrictions um, for the pandemic. So. Um, Last Wednesday, new new restrictions were introduced for property services providers. You might just talk us through those. Yeah, uh, Carol, I think that the, the most important ones for most people are around about the viewings of properties and when properties can be viewed, etc. Because it's a it's a whole new sort of ball game, even from an agent's point of view. Uh, since last Wednesday, you can't actually view a property subject to agreeing a contract on the property, or sorry, agreeing a sale on the property. And then a contract has to be drafted on that property before such time as you can actually view it. So that it means really that an agent will only be able to view that property with the purchaser of it. Uh, and uh, the, the contract will more than likely be done subject to view on the property, which I think most people, if we discussed this many uh, years ago, or maybe even many months ago, it would be laughable. But we're in this situation now that uh, a viewer can't actually view the property until such time they agree a sale because they'll have to virtually view it prior to that. Um, which is a good thing probably from, from many people's point of view, but from the agent's point of view, it's uh, it's very sort of uh, confined to say the least. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a huge restriction. I think it, it it's worth repeating because um, when this came out last Wednesday, there was a bit of mixed interpretation around it. So just to be really clear, if you're if for for home buyers or prospective um, investors would be investors, if you're considering buying a property, you have to sale agree it based on the uh, based on the provided images or video or virtual reality walkthrough, and not just uh, do you need to sale agree it in terms of paying over the booking deposit, but actually there needs to be a contract drafted um, and in place. Is that the position right now? Yeah, that's the position right now. There needs to be a contract drafted. Now, that contract doesn't have to be signed uh, by either parties, but it does have to be drafted. I think originally the, the government or the minister would have liked to have had it in a situation where you could only view the property where contracts were actually exchanged. Uh, but that really would was 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 to a situation where uh, the, I don't think anybody would buy a property at that particular stage um, without viewing it. It's not like a, a, a cake or a trousers or a shirt or a something that you would buy or a dress or something that you buy and you can send back if you don't like it. Yeah. If you went to that stage of buying a property, search sorely by uh, virtually viewing it, I don't think any sales would happen. And even in the current uh, restrictions, I don't think too many sales will happen. But maybe uh, some people will see it as maybe an advantage in some ways that they would sell agree a property and they will have the possibility of it being subject to viewing and subject obviously to loans and engineers uh, uh, view engineers uh, reports and everything so that it will be something very similar except that you can't view the property 
Prior to that, you could view the property, providing you could prove that you could had enough funds uh, to buy the property. And again, there was a bit of confusion about that because a lot of people were saying, well, you want to see my loan approval. And auctioneers and estate agents didn't want to see people's loan approval. But what they did want to see was a letter from their bank or the solicitor confirming that they had funds in place to buy such a property. And I don't think it's too much to ask anybody if you're going to bring people out and you're going to view properties, you need to be able to show that you could actually buy the property before you do. Uh, slightly different again, I suppose, than where we are today and indeed uh, today the restrictions are very tight and auctioneers and estate agents respect the fact that obviously we all have to do our bit to make sure that this disease you know that the numbers are brought down because the numbers are very very high at the moment and it's in everybody's interest that we bring the numbers down and obviously auctioneers are happy to do their little bit and providing it's going to be the shortest amount of time as possible it's going to be reviewed again on the end of January so hopefully at that stage we might get back to where we were prior with the level five or certainly we'll be looking to get back to there but again it depends on the numbers and where they are and how many people are infected etc etc okay uh, Pat you know when I heard this first um, I was quite incredulous because having worked in the industry for a long time you know, it, it felt almost unfair, but but worse than that, I could see a scenario where there would be a lot of um, people sale agreeing and then, you know, maybe next month withdrawing. So you would have, you know, unnecessary conveyancing expenses and, you know, people maybe making plans with the expectation that a property would be sale agreed and it in fact not being sale agreed. So um, w- when I heard about this, it, you know, I, I was quite incredulous. However, um, I'm getting the sense that this isn't something that was lobbied for, that this was almost a compromise in order to keep the industry open over the next uh, three to four weeks. Would that be nearer the reality? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was something that was, it, it certainly wasn't something that was looked in from the industry point of view. It was something that was uh, brought on us, I suppose, by government in, 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 in when we look at it. Um, and I suppose many agents probably felt that this was probably going to happen or some some sort of a design of this was going to happen. Um, we probably, you're, you're correct in saying that maybe some unnecessary conveyance will be done by people sale agreeing a property and then pulling out the sale. Uh, and indeed, that's quite true. Uh, it remains to be seen how that will happen or will it happen. And if it does happen, well, then obviously it will form part of our discussions again at the next stage with the government. Yeah. Um, but obviously, we're, we're, we're all anxious of where we are right now and there's as much fear out with the state agents as there are with anybody else. So like, we're happy to help, but uh, you know, at the same time, the market is probably as good as being closed right now, even though you can take on houses to, or you can take on properties on your books, but you have to again, go and look at the property with nobody is in it. You can't meet the owner of the property or the vendor of the property you have to meet them across zoom like we're doing now mm-hmm. or you have to meet them on the telephone etc etc and send your documentation your psra contract to get signed so that it's completely different as to what estate agents because estate agents are you know they like to meet their clients and discuss with them and talk to them and see what they're doing and what they're not doing and about prices and everything like that and it's important to be able to sit face to face and look at somebody and speak to somebody and for the estate agent to get a feel for the vendor but also it's very important for the vendor to get a state get a view of their state agent and to get a feel for them but i think the most important thing at the moment that it's 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 it is that vendors need to be kept safe their families need to be kept safe and obviously estate agents need to be kept safe as well and their families need to be kept safe and viewers as well coming to look at property so it's probably it's needed at the moment i've no doubt about that it is an inconvenience and a quite a big inconvenience to lots of people and lots of estate agents but is, is that's where we are and there's not much we can do about it at this particular stage but yeah. hopefully when the figures drop then we'll be able to go back to the government again and we'll get to move on to a different level as to where we are right now yeah no look absolutely and i i mean at a, at a basic level the alternative is that the industry shuts down completely as we've seen with construction all non-essential uh, construction now has been shut down so in fact in a way there's a lot of trust being given to the industry so we need for that to to be taken very seriously um pat you know when you and i spoke at the in the early stages of the pandemic i don't know about you but i certainly was very naive about um how long the the likely impacts would be um but in terms of some positives and I know it's very early to be talking about this but um, you know there are certainly been some things that have been quite good for the industry so in terms of adoption of new technologies the fact that um, there's been a culture shift now across buyers and investors that you know they have become accustomed to viewing properties online you know and that's going to make the workplace a more efficient 
place for estate agents and auctioneers. Um, so apart from this latest measure, which to be fair, we're hoping it's only going to be for a number of weeks. Um, you know, a, lo- a lot of the moves have been to make the industry more efficient. Um, the last time we spoke, you were talking about the launch of a legal pack. So where are you with that? Or is that something that still is still being planned or, or is likely to proceed in 2021? Yeah, it's very likely to proceed, Carol. And actually, what the government are 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 doing here would feed right into the legal pack, the seller's legal pack, um, because the seller's legal pack is a makeup of eleven legal documents which are uh, produced prior to a property going on the market. And one of those documents would be draft contracts, so that those draft contracts would actually be uh, would have had been drawn up prior to a property going on the market under the legal sellers pack and uh, numerous other documents as well, which would be planning documents and different searches and different things. So that those documents are are available at the moment if you buy a property online. So we're saying, why shouldn't they be available if you go to put a property on by private treaty? Because many sales come along and people are disappointed then when it comes to the end that you can't sell a property because of a right away or different disputes over different things on it as to who actually even owns the property. Some 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 properties fall uh, out of the 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 sale of brief falls off. Uh, so that you know, it's from our point of view, it's very, this is very, very important. And it's very important that we actually are able to bring in this. Um, we've launched, a, we've written a new bill, which we hope to get taken through the doll, uh, which will be explained to all of the um, TDs uh, there. And we hope to get support for this. Um, wh- where we are right now is this probably in the next, I'm, I'm not sure about the doll, how the doll works, but the TD we're looking at at the moment uh, will uh, be bringing the 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 uh, the documents through the doll, so obviously they will fit in with the time scales and what time they get and when they can bring it and when they can speak in it and that, and we hope to get support on it. But we think that at the moment, if the minister had this pack in place, that the draft contracts were there, it would be absolutely fantastic because all you would have to do is take out your draft contract and. Uh, get it signed even by parties because a lot of that work will be done and a lot of this work that we're speaking about is done by solicitors over the term of a sale agreed and to write in the end but the amount of time scale is huge so that this legal sellers pack if this work is done at the beginning before a property is put in the market from the time the property then is put in the market it should have the time of the conveyancing time at the moment or the conveyancing delays that are there so that's what we're hoping to do and it's very much a, a live document at the moment and a live idea by IPAV and some that we're hoping to proceed and hoping that we're going to get government support for in the future. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear because through the course of talking about uh, driving efficiencies across the the property sector in Ireland and particularly across the transaction, you know, the uh, flying the ointment, uh, so to speak, has always really been the conveyancing delays um, and the Law Society has come under quite a bit of criticism for this and perhaps maybe um, in some cases unfairly. But in terms of new processes, are um, Law Society members on board with this? Well, we have asked them to be on board with it and they're not on board with it at the moment. Um, They haven't told us that they're that they're totally against it, but they haven't told us that they support it either. Even though we have the support of many solicitors for it separately, and even on our actual brochure ourselves, we have uh, many solicitors who want their names on it to say that they support it. So that we would hope to get the Law Society support for it because we're not far off where the Law Society, the Law Society are because they brought in about two years ago what they call a PC, PCIT, which is a pre-contract investigation of title. So we think this is a step further on, and the next step, obviously, is going to be e but we think this is a step further on from that and we think that solicitors and the law society should obviously support this but it's uh, it's up obviously it's up to themselves as to see this uh, fundamental from their point of view or not and um, there is sort of different considerations around about will people pay first of all to get these documents on board but we do know from experience that people are paying because these documents are there they've been there for years in the case of a public auction you needed all these documents before you could put the property on for public auction we know now that they also have to be made available for for property sales online so that uh, that argument it doesn't really work from the point of view of uh, 
solicitors have to get paid at the end of the day anyway. And this should really help them because now they're doing a certain amount of work. Uh, they should get paid for that work that they're doing. It's their legal work and they should get paid for it. But the pack is there to make sure that the sale motors on from there and that the weeks that it takes to prepare this pack are taken care in the front before such time as the property goes sale agree. And hence for consumers and everybody, this is going to be very good news because it's going to stop gizumping and gizundering indeed. So that the amount of time that you could have, we say, if you took your sale 16 weeks to close, on the 15th week, somebody could gizump you and the whole process could have to start again. So that this will, if you shorten the time span, it's not going to do away with it because gizumping is legal in Ireland, but it's not going to shorten the, it's not going to take away the gizumping, but it's going to shorten the time path that somebody could actually do this. So we're hoping that 50 percent of the time could be saved if this legal pack comes in and comes into operation and it's a bit unusual i suppose for state agents to be saying well we we would like to have this pack in place before we put properties on the market because a lot of people want to put properties on the market immediately but we feel that it's going to be good for the industry it's going to be good for the estate agents it's going to be good for consumers because it's going to give certainty in properties that are for sale and it's going to be good obviously for estate agents themselves because it's going to save a lot less time and we're going to get paid quicker which is Obviously, everybody's uh, every, everybody's aim at the end of the day, but you're getting paid for work that you've done, which is which is yeah. very very good. I I think it's so heartening to see the industry use the opportunity um, of the pandemic, and I'm using opportunity in in the right sense of the term there that that they're using this opportunity to actually drive efficiencies because it's something that didn't happen um, throughout and after the crash and as the market was starting to recover because I think the recovery when it finally came then moved quicker than people expected. So actually that opportunity wasn't taken advantage of, whereas it's great to see that happening now because even though these are short-term measures uh, designed to solve short-term problems, they're actually going to have a long-term impact on the industry. So it's a really important one. In terms of gazumping, I think we could have a whole show on that because yeah. that's something that we get quite a lot of um, emails about. And, you know, it's it's still such a hot button topic, but we definitely won't get into that today. But before we let you go, Pat, you know, you might just give us a sense of how uh, IPAV members are coping, if that's the right word. Um, you know, they, we're going into our 11th month, much longer than than people had expected. How are your members coping? How are they feeling about the year ahead? Um, I think members are coping actually very well. And we and IPAV have tried to do many things for them. Like we ran a little project last year on Grow Your Own Vegetables uh, for members. And I'm talking about the, the social side, I suppose, of the of the of the of the members at the moment. And um, we also run coffee mornings, which people can meet and you can uh, pick a, a person to have a coffee with and discuss with them, which this is this is something that members really, really love. Uh, and they can pick any member from any of our, our, our members that take part in this. And obviously, it's a great way of networking and it's a great way of talking to people, but it's also getting a great way of ideas, just throwing out ideas, you know, and seeing where uh, what people can do uh, with maybe in the future. But it's it's um, so from that, I suppose, to different. Now we have an awful lot of uh, of Zoom meetings, obviously, and uh, Zoom webinars, which, again, are good for people. There's no sort of meeting, you know, obviously with people, even through our AGM and everything. It was all done on Zoom this year or last year, should I say. Um, so that members are coping, I think, very, very well. They're still you, you, you can still use your office, even though the office is closed and the back office is closed, even from last Wednesday as well, with the exception of, 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 of essential work that you need to do so that members can still sort of go in and out of their offices, which isn't uh, bad, you know, from 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 members point of view. I know they're traveling a little bit, but we were lucky enough to get uh, the the property services as an essential service, which is which is good. You know, when people are coming to the guards and things like that. You know, that they can actually pass by and they don't can show their white their white uh, licensed card. Um, so that I think members have been very resilient and incredibly so from the point of view that you know that they're they're waiting for to get back out there just to be able to sell like people that are that are estate agents. I suppose you know there's a sort of a there's a sort of a loving of this of doing the deal and getting it over the line and meeting with people and talking to them and getting to actually property sale agreed uh, like this is it's 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 um 
it's it's in their blood, I think, you know, to do this. We're all waiting to get back out there again. But I think that in the shorter term, I suppose people, you know, it is definitely having an effect on mental health and different things to go with that. Uh, being locked up at home all of the time. And indeed, in many situations, you know, probably not having the correct offices for it. Maybe sitting at their kitchen table where there are other members of the family as well. It happens to myself in lots of cases as well. And, you know, you're you're not thought about the greatly when you start talking on Zoom and start talking on the telephones, you know. And so it's... Um, it's, it's the resilience that's there that people are actually doing now and to members to be actually doing that is fantastic. And I members I speak to now, you know, they're still very hot up about what uh, is going to happen, you know, when we get back out there working. There's a scarcity of property at the moment. We're going back into a situation where there are loads and loads of buyers to buy properties. Uh, I suppose properties throughout the country are very cheap and keen at the moment, priced. And there's uh, mortgages available for this type of property. Interest rates are low. Um, you know, there's 10-year fixed mortgages available now. Uh, there's a government scheme that will give you up to 30 years fixed mortgage uh, for different sales. So that, you know, all in all, I think we're all looking forward to getting back. And now if the vaccine works and we're looking at two ends of a pipe now, we're looking into one end, which is all the numbers are very high, but we're looking in the other end, at least we can see out that the vaccine is coming to meet us. So hopefully, but two things happen maybe somewhere in the middle of the year, maybe we'll get back to being able to meet people towards maybe June or July or whatever the case is, and it could be all very, very good. Yeah, I, I hope so, Pat. Um, listen, thank you again for being with us today. That was Pat Davidge, CEO of IPAB. Um, I always appreciate your insights, Pat, and no doubt we'll be touching base with you again soon. And of course, anything that we can do to support your members, just let us know. We'll take a quick break now. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. So I'm now joined by James Benson, Director of Housing Planning and Development Services at the Construction Industry Federation. James, thank you for joining us today. How are you? Uh, very good, Carol. Thanks uh, Thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here. Well, I'm delighted you were able to join us. Um, obviously, you're working at the coalface there in terms of the industry is, uh, while the country is in its third lockdown as such, the construction industry has gone into its second shutdown um, and there seems to be a little bit of confusion about what that means. So you might just talk to us about the the parts of the industry that have been shut down and those that are still continuing um, as designated essential works. Yeah, very good. I suppose we, we are in quite a different situation to what we were of, of March of 2020, this time around, where construction probably faced its first lockdown at that point in time. Um, we were in a very precarious situation at that point because we really didn't know what what would we need? What needed to be done, and when we would be reopening? We didn't have any measures or protocols to say, well, how could we operate effectively with COVID nineteen as it were? Um, and it was great uncertainty at that point. We were running a, a four week lockdown initially, that was extended by another two weeks and another two weeks. Thankfully, this time round, I think the the industry is far better prepared. Um, we're in a situation now where we've demonstrated over the last nine months that we know what to do when trying to work with this virus. And we have numerous operations, procedures and protocols put in place to effectively work with that. And we've seen very, very low case numbers connected to construction um, uh, and supply chain for construction over the last nine months. Um, So we know when we when we are allowed by the government, when it's safe to do so, when we reopen, we know what we have to do. Um, Equally, we're in a different situation now. Guidance the last time in the first lockdown said that a number of essential services were permitted for construction. Um, and a lot of those were around civil and outdoor works and FDI. This time around, the government have introduced and signed into effect by the Minister for Health um, under the Health Act. So we have a, a regulation, we have statutory instrument now which actually dictates exactly what or what not can happen during this lockdown time. Um, in relation to residential, um, I think it's very important to say there is a number of permitted works allowed for um, on the residential, and that's and rightly so, because we do have a housing crisis and we do need to see critical homes um, delivered even during this time. Um, so under two sections um, under regulation, we're allowed to continue on works on social projects. Um, and there, those are those units that would have been completed by the 28th of February. Um, and where you've got written confirmation from the local authority or approved housing body to do so. And that's quite clear cut. And we see quite a bit of activity with that throughout the country, thankfully. Um, 
and the, the feel of why, why this was introduced was to ensure that those who were in a very difficult situation, they could be, you know, multiple families within a hotel room or in homelessness or in, in difficult accommodation at the moment. It's to take them out of those high risk areas with COVID um, and those units that could have been completed and would be completed by the end of February would allow them to move into a safer place. In relation to private dwellings, uh, slightly different. It was those units where work were ongoing by the 8th of January when, when the regulations were introduced and would be ready for occupancy on the 31st of January. Um, and again, it's those homes that were capable of being occupied. Um, and again, this was to try and ensure where people that were about to move out of older accommodation, where they'd given their um, where their leases were up, where their, their rental accommodation was going elsewhere, that they weren't going to be caught out where they'd drawn down a mortgage and the transaction had already occurred or was about to occur and they wouldn't be left without accommodation. So thankfully, we saw two different areas in under those regulations where residential activity can continue on um, and it will do so. Um, um, was that broader than the restriction or was that broader than, say, what was designated as essential during the first lockdown? Uh, very much so, Carol. Yeah, in, in the first time, there was no residential works per se that were permitted in the first four weeks. Um, after about a six-week period, we did see a number of um, essential social projects deemed eligible to complete works or to recommence works. And again, it was under similar criteria, those that would have been finished within a six to eight week basis, but that was only for social projects. This time round, it's social projects, which include part five units, again, which are very important, important. and also has the, the private element. Now, thankfully, as we know, residential has shown to be, even within the construction sector, um, very uh, I suppose, very safe when working with the COVID-19. You know, we have a lot of outdoor works. We have minimal amount of trades actually working within a home. Um, and you can program it out quite well and quite easily to ensure that you have very low numbers when working within homes. Um, and naturally, you have phasing of any development anyway. So you're seeing limited numbers on site uh, compared to what you might see elsewhere within the industry. You know, one thing that occurs to me, because you and I spoke on air um maybe just during or perhaps um, immediately after the pa the last industry shutdown. And one thing we saw was that uh, the Construction Industry Federation, together with your team, there was a lot of working to put new safety protocols in place. Now, we know objectively that they have worked very well because we could see the instances of uh, infection in terms of clusters was very low across the construction sector. So have they changed much, um, the, the, the HSE and CIF uh, safety protocols? Did they have to change much um, for this current period of restriction? I think, uh, thankfully, to the safety committee and Dermot Carey, the, the director of safety in CIF, uh, there was anything from 30 to 60 different individuals working on the initial standard operating procedures that came into effect. It was a mammoth amount of work, um, but it was critical for the industry. Um, they didn't wait till now till the, a new lockdown for to update that. That's a very fluid document um, and they're on revision seven as it currently stands. So we've seen several different reiterations as we've gone through the pandemic and as elements of the virus have changed and the information that we know um, to be credible has changed. So that is, that's constantly evolving and changing and it will continue to do so when we do reopen. At least people know where they are when they're reopening um, and we're taking this on their best advice and best practice that will continue to evolve and we're likely to see revisions 8, 9 and 10 in the next number of months as, as, as it requires and as is dictated. But uh, thankfully, as I said, the initial mammoth amount of work was done and is there and it's a lot easier now to, to move the document as required. Okay, and look, it's, it's very easy for us to stay, to stay um, really looking at the immediacy because it seems so urgent. And one of the things I want to do is talk to you about what... Um, people in the industry should be doing, how they can be using this time really to work on the business rather than in the business um, and all of, all of the other ways that they can get ready to, to go back on site. Um, but I'm also interested to get your long-term view because at the end of the day, and you touched on it, this pandemic is coinciding with a housing crisis that we've had that has been very much about supply. And there's been this persistent undersupply problem um, that the pandemic has has only added to now while the construction sector has really uh, rallied so that actually the outputs from 2020 were above our, our expectations um we're still not we're still not uh delivering 
anywhere close to the need, the established and objective, the objectively established need that we have in terms of the volume of new housing. How I mean, can we take another loss of a year in terms of productivity? I suppose a, a couple of points there to try and cover off, Carol. An important time for those who are operating and not operating within the residential sector. Um, we can't afford to 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 lose any number of weeks. For those, we we've issued out a number of recommendations to our own members and, and communicated on a, a a daily and a bi daily basis at this point in time. Because um, it is very important to communicate with those who are continuing on works. As we mentioned earlier on, under the Health Act, there is permitted works for social and private dwellings. It's important to get the communication right there. We've advised members who would be continuing on works on those particular projects to notify the local guards to make sure that they're aware of um, movement in and out of site, to put notification up on their own sites as to works being permitted under the regulation. And this is all in an effort to ensure and inform the public and those within the area that these are legitimate works and allowed for under the regulation. Um, equally, those who aren't operating on site, they're probably using this time for forward planning, making sure they're catching up on invoicing and all the different aspects, future planning, procurement, tendering. Um, you know, unfortunately, we're now in the midst of the, the, the aftermath of Brexit. You know, we're going to see issues with supply chains. We've already seen the cost of a number of products increase in the last number of weeks insulation, timber, steel have all gone up um, a significant percentage and all these will add. So people are working on those aspects while they're not directly on site, they are working on critical, I suppose, administration and supply chains in the background. Um, to your point on delivery, I suppose when we saw we saw last year, we the, the final figures for 2020 aren't, aren't fully known just yet. Um, indications that we're north of 19,000 at this point in time, and we hope we get closer to 20,000. Um, and I think you'd have to say that that is a success for 2020 when we look at the overall picture. Um, as you say, we spoke probably back in, in April of last year, and at that time we were predicting we could only see 14 to 15,000 units delivered by the end of the year. We'd seen a significant drop in commencements in the third quarter. We were 40% down on what we normally are. Um, and people were very anxious about how would the market react, what would the resilience of the wider public be um, in relation to their spending deposits um, and what, what they would actually look to do. Um, thankfully, you know, indications were good. There was a bounce back within the market, you know, prices held strong. And, and we were in a position where people actually were able to move on to the next development and the next, the next phase. Equally, you would hope that that would be the same for 2021, that hopefully we'll be in a position where come the 1st of February um, and in advance of that there will be the review to see if the industry can reopen at that point in time. You would hope that we would um, reopen at that point in time. Um, I suppose it's, it's worth reminding everyone, um, construction was designated uh, an essential service under level five restrictions. So we were able to operate right up until, you know, the very escalated current restrictions we're in. So we would hope that when we do see so and when it is safe, construction will be back out there. Um, and residential will kick off again. Um, I would remain quite optimistic, given the conversations I'm having with our own members throughout the country, that we could push on to potentially 22,000 um, units this year, maybe even north of that, which would be great. Um, but again, we need to be conscious of where we are. We will have lost a, the best part of a full month this year, so we are down to trying to make up that uh, month over an 11-month basis. That is based on the hope that we would see we won't see any further lockdowns in 2021. Um, if we get there, if we get to 22,000, we're still probably a third shy of where we need to get to. You know, based on who you speak with, you know, experts would say we need 33,000 to 36 to 38,000. So we're still a long way off that. Um, but before COVID, we had a number of challenges within the residential sector that meant we weren't hitting those targets. We weren't hitting the demand that was there. We had affordability issues, um, and we spoke at length the last time on that. Um, we have the cost of delivery. You know, who's actually going to deliver these homes remains a, still a big question at the forefront of most people's minds. But it's quite clear we, we need everyone delivering these homes. This isn't going to be a question of, you know, private or state, whether it's more effective or cost effective to deliver publicly or privately. The, the reality is we need all you know, elements. We need all housing types, you know, all tenure types um, increased in volume throughout this year and beyond. 
um, and quite a uh, quite a bit more over the next number of years to get in close to the demand we see. And again, every year we don't hit that and we fall short. It further worsens the problem down the line. So we have a long way to go. Um, but thankfully, I, I would have to say again, we had a very I would have to say we had a positive budget in October of 2020. You know, we did see that the shared equity or affordability scheme will come into effect this year. Um, and that's going to do wonders, I suppose, for those who have been locked out of the market and stuck in that affordability gap. Um, that can do a huge amount there. You know, site services fund, the likes of help to buy, all those little pieces all go massively towards, you know, finding the overall solution. So, you know, one little change or one, um, I suppose one change in the system won't do it. It's going to be a number of different elements that we're going to we're going to need to see change, as like I say, from viability, affordability, right through to the cost of delivery and, and planning being a huge element of that. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny actually. You've touched on a few topics there that are definitely they're they're topics that are almost too broad to get into today because I know we have to finish up. But you know, in terms of um, you know, revitalizing our planning uh, process to make it more efficient. I mean, in terms of affordability, it feels like something we're discussing almost every week on the show. And it's, you know, it's still something that's eluding us. And I think it just goes to show the unusual uh, and uh, the chaotic nature of where we find ourselves that uh, Brexit isn't the biggest topic uh, of discussion. And it's something that um, maybe when the industry opens back up, and we can we have a slightly longer time to get a sense of the impact of uh, Brexit in its reality. I think that that's going to be another interesting conversation, but also another challenge for the industry um, as soon as they're they're ready to open up. But in the meantime, we'll certainly keep in touch with your team and the CIF and to keep the industry uh, updated. And as you say, hopefully we're run, we're looking at a shorter period. Um, that was James Benson, Director of Housing Planning and Development Services at the Construction Industry Federation. Thank you again for joining us uh, today, James. We need to take another quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. Hello and welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. And I'm now joined and I'm delighted to be joined by one of my favourite women in PropTech, one of my favourite people in PropTech, Angelica Donati, PropTech expert and Forbes contributor. Angelica, it's been a while since you've been on the show. Welcome back. Hi, Carol. Thank you so much for having me back and thank you so much for the glowing introduction. I'm, I'm so flattered. I, I, I mean, I mean every word of it um, and actually I, I was so excited to get an opportunity to speak to you today and um, this is our first show back after the new year and we're just starting into our third year of broadcasting which we're also very excited about um, but Angie I came across the your most recent Forbes column talking to some of the biggest names in prop tech and construction tech about not so much 2020 which I was glad about but really about their expectations for 2021. There was a lot of exciting stuff there. So uh, first of all, maybe introduce some of the people that you spoke to as part of this column. Yes, of course. So this is the third year running that I uh, I do this analysis. As, as you said, I normally also do a roundup of the year that just finished, but um, I just thought that 2020 is too depressing and it's best forgotten as quickly as possible. So th- this year we focused only on 2021. And over the past few years, I've had the, the fortune and the opportunity of being able to build up a, a group of venture capital experts, venture capital investors from all over the world. So in no particular order, um, I have PyLab's founder, Faisal Butt, so from, 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 from London, as well as Concrete VC founder, Taylor Westcote. So those are our two London-based um, PropTech VCs. I have um, Zach Ahrens, who is one of the co-founders of Metaprop out of New York, as well as RET Ventures partner, John Helm, and also um, Camber Creek general partner, Jeffy Berman. So they represent the US in this. And then I have for, for Asia, I have JLL Sparks, um, Anuj Nangpal, and Taranga's Jonathan Hanam. And then out of Israel, and he is a new addition to, to the lineup this year, um, I have Odit Eliashev, and I'm sure I'm butchering his name, but Odit is the co-founding managing partner of Built Up Ventures out of Tel Aviv. Excellent. And were you surprised that there was a lot of consensus 
you know, given the geographical spread and the technology spread, there was a lot of consensus maybe about the impact of the pandemic on the on the take up of technology in the real estate. I wasn't surprised because it's the feedback I've been getting throughout the year in 2020. So um, I guess we have to talk about 2020 a bit, unfortunately, to, to, to contextualize everything. But basically what happened is that after the first few months of the year where everything pretty much ground to a halt, let's say towards the summer, um, real estate players across the board starting to have to think outside the box. And they were forced to do so. And so um, paradoxically, but maybe not even paradoxically, just as a consequence of what, what was going on and of the emergency and of and of all the limitations that were in place, um, innovation that was pending, innovation that perhaps was going to happen sooner or later, it happened sooner because it was kind of uh, a question of innovate or die, uh, find digital efficiencies or die, change the way you do things or stop working altogether. Yeah. And I, and actually, that's something that we are going to come to because one of the things that I, I've been critical of is that you know we've we've rolled up a lot of the progress that's been made and called it an acceler- an acceleration of of uh, existing trends. But actually, I think there were a few new trends in terms of solutions for social distancing and maybe some design changes that will impact um, on the built environment going forward. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's start by actually just trying to, to really conceptualize how important, like all of the people that you interviewed for this Forbes column, um, really it can't be understated how influential and how much these particular people in, in these organizations impact um, prop tech and construction tech because they hold the purse strings. These are the guys, and I unfortunately it is almost all guys, um, but these are the people who hold uh, the money and we need to watch where the money is going. So in terms of venture capital, I think it's a, it's always a good indicator of where the interest is. Um, and there's a, there's a few things that came up, which I think are really telling, but let's start by, you know, the things that almost all of the people you interviewed seem to experience. And that was, um, you know, the strength that it was very uh, almost countercyclical that the, the strength that we saw emerging um, through these technologies was contrary to what was happening across traditional real estate assets. And that, again, seemed to be a global, um, th- that was happening globally. But I think it was really interesting. Um, you know, w- one of your contributors quoted that the billions of dollars that have already been invested in innovative real estate is just a drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was Jeffrey Berman. And I think he was spot on. Um, because no, you think about the sheer no. size of the market. And, and then although we're talking about tens of billions, I mean, I'll, I'll be interested to see what the actual investment sums were in 2020, because I'm sure there will have been a contraction in the overall numbers just because the first half of the year was slower. But he's right, Jeff, he's right. I mean, the prop tech and contact market is really, really a tiny fraction of the whole. And as we know, real estate and construction, construction even more so, are very much at the end of the scale in terms of investment in innovation. So do you think- have any idea yet how big, uh, you know, if we were to separate prop tech from construction tech, do we have any idea how big the construction tech can go? I mean, on paper, it could go, it could, it could grow to a market worth tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions. And right now it's in the single digits. So, I mean, the construction, the construction, global construction market is, is worth trillions of dollars. So, I mean, the, the sky's the limit. And if you um, if you compare it across asset classes, across other asset classes, I think it's the second least innovated sector globally. What's, and, least, what's the least innovative? Um, I don't want to make a mistake. I think it's agriculture. Okay. Yeah, but, that's an interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> It was really interesting to hear people, um, you know, when when you hear the industry talk about where they think technology growth is going to come from or where they think innovation is going to come from, it's not the same as hearing it from the people who are funding the rollout of that innovation. Um, so I was surprised by a couple of things. So, for example, you know, we saw some, um, you know, we saw sustainability is high on the list, high on the agenda, 
that's not new. You know, we know for the last number of years that that's been high on the agenda. I think maybe how how that's changed slightly from what we see across PropTech Ireland is, um, you know, where there might have been smart city interests in things like um, monitoring air quality. And, you know, we know that the built environment is responsible for almost 40% of carbon emissions. So there was always going to be a big part, part for construction to play. But I think what's interesting is the the technologies like um, in in um, interior air quality monitoring, um, real-time metrics required. There's been, that, that, that technology has been available for years, but, it was it was for some reason treated as a novelty, whereas now that's absolutely a necessity. Absolutely, because COVID has brought these issues front and center. So all of a sudden now, it's not just about when you think about the built environment, when you think about commercial and residential assets, it's not just about segmenting down to the segment of one and giving every individual user the best possible experience, but it's also giving them the safest experience. And so, as you were mentioning, air quality is is a huge component in in that, as is all the social distancing measures. So all of a sudden, it's not just about maximizing um, usage of space, but how to do maximize usage safely. And so you're having to fine tune these measures and they're becoming more relevant because perhaps um, you could get away with not being that analytical when you were just trying to maximize rent. But now that it's a health and safety issue, then the, the, the degree of precision needs to be more accurate. Yeah. You know, actually, one thing I'd be interested in, because I know that you come from a, a traditional construction background. Um, one of the things we've seen is that in order to make um, buildings and workplaces safer, then measures have had to be taken in terms of, say, the HVAC systems, uh, increased ventilation, increased air exchanges. Mm -hmm. Um, These are all high energy consumption activities. So actually what's needed to happen to address safety in the workplace in terms of air quality um, and ventilation is running contrary to what needs to happen in terms of our sustainability goals. Now, I I think universally we can agree that um, obviously um slowing down the spread of the virus is a priority but at what point you know is there a fine balance between these measures to make workplaces safer and uh running contrary to the sustainable the sustainability goals that every responsible real estate um building owner and manager would have now Right. And that is kind of the frontier of innovation, right? Because the goal would be to be able to be more sustainable, safer, and basically have a win-all scenario. Of course, with the technology that we have today, that's not as uh, as feasible. So as you say, there needs to be some kind of a balance. But then that, the pandemic has, has brought to the fore a lot of other issues related to, the, to this matter. Just think about plastic waste. I mean, we're all rightly and everybody should we're all wearing masks which is very important most of them are not not recyclable so then we'll have to deal with that issue later on now does that mean we stop wearing masks no it just means that we need to we need to find the balance to make sure that we act responsibly for the future as we act responsibly for our our present yeah yeah no and and there's always a balance uh, you know even in terms of innovation and even when we look at the sustainability goals that a lot of organizations would have outside of covid there are always competing interests mm-hmm. so there's always a, a case of having to prioritize um but jump into another topic that actually was covered in, in um your feature was a really interesting one in terms of we we see with any mature market that there uh, their their winners and losers emerge, um, and you, we have consolidation. Mm-hmm. And and I would have thought that it was almost too early to call that in the prop tech sector because you know even though there are players that have been uh, innovating using technology for the built environment for twenty years, um, you know the, the real rise in prop tech that we've seen is really only six years. Mm-hmm. So, um. Were you were you surprised to hear about um, maybe one of the quotes there is that PropTech leaders aggressively consolidating um, now going forward? It, are you starting to see that in the marketplace? I think some consolidation has already started taking place. I mean, we've seen it over the past couple of years, and I think I think it's it's a two pronged question. It's a two pronged issue. So on the one hand, you have 
the growth of investment capital investment capital made available to to these startups. So um, besides the fact that corporate venturing is going to just keep on growing as real estate incumbents realize that real estate and construction incumbents realize that they should probably deploy capital into the technologies and into the um efficiencies that they're going to adopt rather than just purchasing them. So that's one thing which has been happening already and it should pick up steam. There's this whole cradle to grave concept, which is that the investment market needs to be able to follow a a prop tech or context startup all the way through. So um, what we've seen, for example, in Europe is that Europe has got a lot of early stage investors, but not so much later stage, whereas the American market is more evolved. And so this is something that's going to definitely start to happen more and more. And as more, especially private equity capital comes into the market, as more companies are able to grow and mature um, within the prop tech landscape, then consolidation is inevitable because that, that, that's just what happens in, 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 in any kind of business scenario. So once you move past the scrappy startups trying to prove their concept and into the business as a going concern scenario, then that's just inevitable. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting when you draw comparisons between the investment ecosystem and maybe the availability of higher like Series A round funding um, in Europe versus the US or, you know, London uh, versus the US, because in Ireland, that would something that, that, you know, that's something that we don't have. We don't have a well-established funding ecosystem for startups. So actually, you know, anything beyond, you know, half a million in terms of early stage funding that's then matched, once you go far beyond that, we tend to lose good companies that good startups that um are well poised for for export export almost immediately we tend to lose them actually to london or toronto um purely purely to access funding and you know in this day and age it seems crazy that um we're you know we're looking for technology that is without borders why do we have venture capital with borders Absolutely. And also because another key factor is that this next stage of growth has to be global. So mm-hmm. you can only go so far regionally. And and some of the investors I spoke to were very clear in that they, they don't want to see regional champions. They want to see global champions. Mm-hmm. And, and so, as you say, if, if your reach needs to be without borders, so should your pockets, let's say, your, your investor reach. And unfortunately, it's still very localized. And I think in terms of Europe, we... Um, as a, a just geographically pay the price for being very fragmented culturally as well. So the U.S. will always have the upper hand in in, in the respect that there's 300 million people living in one country with one language, whereas we have the same amount of people living in a lot of countries with lots of different languages, lots of different rules, and, and that's always going to slow us down. Yeah, you know, whenever we're talking about connectivity, um, um, Ireland is always seen as a small island that's incredibly well connected to the rest of the world and to influential regions across the world with the absolute exception of accessing uh, VC funding. So that's something that I'm I'm really excited to see change. And in fact, I, I saw uh, Taylor Westcott actually talked about how that that is tied to the growth of the, the venture eco, uh, the venture capital ecosystem globally, you know, mm-hmm. and that I thought it was really interesting when he talked about how significant traditional players um, in the real estate sector realize that they have value to contribute via their portfolios and they want some skin in the game. And that's amazing because actually one of the things when we're looking at um, the right investors for prop tech startups, it's it's about so much more than the money. You know, if you're getting access to testing environments, access to a portfolio that is going to launch you outside of your own regional market, you know, these are all really significant things. And um, it, in a way, I'm surprised that we haven't gone further faster in terms of breaking down geographical barriers when it comes to venture uh, venture capital uh, funding and opportunities um, globally. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I act as a, as a judge on the Leading Cities Accelerator program that's global, but based out of Boston. And so we, we get to see innovations coming from all around the world. And you can see that where you start your startup absolutely influences um, whether you will access funding. It's not about the best. There's, there's a huge uh, geographical factor. And, you know, particularly we're seeing this in, 
countries in South America. And, um, you know, so there are states that there's a natural advantage there. And that's something that, you know, coming into 2021, it feels like a really good time to break that down. I absolutely agree. And I'll, I'll give you an example that's closer to home. Just look at Italy. Italy is a much bigger market than Ireland in terms of the country's size, but we are even further back. So uh, startups in Italy are dwarfed by definition just because there isn't a competitive VC landscape and they don't have access to funding outside of the Italian market because uh, European or global investors, I mean, let's not even go there, just don't consider it a central market they, they they consider it peripheral and and because as you say the geography of where you start is so important um concepts that start off in hub geographies are just given that chance to grow more yeah and um, where are we seeing the hubs i mean you know obviously we would look at areas in the middle east and we see some really strong and, and israel being one of those where we're seeing a really strong hub obviously london is one we would love to position dublin as one we're definitely not there yet. Um, and we're not there yet, not just in terms of funding, but in terms of deep tech innovation as well. You know, we're growing the number of startups focused on on um, the, the built environment. But in terms of deep tech innovation, you know, there's still there's still a way to go to build volume. But again, you know, I, I breaking down in the in the attempt to break down geographical barriers, you know, maybe um, there has been a close link to London in the past. We need that to continue post Brexit, and we don't know yet in terms of the flow of capital in a post Brexit world. Yeah, and I mean Brexit is 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 a, a whole other topic, a very unfortunate topic. Um, I, I mean, I I'm European and I grew up in London, and to me Brexit has always been a sad defeat of everything that I've always believed in. And I mean, it has nothing to do with our topic of discussion today, but I had, I had to shut down my UK bank account the other day. And it was one of the saddest days of my year, just because I don't live there anymore. Um, I think that paradoxically, Brexit could be an opportunity for places like Dublin, which are still part, are English speaking and still part of the European Union to grow. But it's, it's a shame that it would have to come to this. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, actually, through PropTech Ireland, we've been approached by PropTechs, particularly from Eastern Europe, who mm-hmm. want to um, start their startup in Ireland purely because it is now the the English-speaking country um, within the EU. So it is, I, we know that there will be opportunities there. It's probably too early to say how that could be capitalised on. Um, you know, I, I, I'm conscious that we're running out of time and I can't let you go before, you know, you you shared all of the expectations for 2021 from um, the different VC uh, leaders in this space. I'm really interested to hear your views on this because like me, you have a passion for construction tech um, and, and see real opportunity there. So, in 2021, where are you seeing the opportunities? So I would say that I very much agree with what the VCs have, have said about this. So I think that we cannot think about the future without thinking about sustainability. And I know that it's a, it's a topic that's been going on for a long time, and it, as it should and as it will. But especially with all the, in Europe at least, the sustainability goals that the EU has in its budget. It's, it's very important and also is very financially sound for players in the real estate space and in construction to really put this aspect front and center. And it kind of, I think it's, it's, it's a, it, it, it cuts across all different types of innovation because the more efficient you are, the more sustainable you are, the better your bottom line. So I think it'll, in terms of construction specifically, um, my hope is that we continue to innovate process, which is obviously the easiest thing to innovate because um, it's easier to, I mean, it's easier to innovate management of the of of a construction site rather than the actual way uh, things are built. Let's say, but I think the next big step, and I don't think it's a 2021 goal, it's a 2030, 2040, 2050 goal, is to industrialize the production process seriously and actually create a systemic shift in in the way things are done. Because right now we're talking about wrapping technology around something that fundamentally is very old fashioned. It is still people working under under the effect of the elements to build something from scratch and in a kind of made to measure way every time. So I think the standardization and industrialization of the process across the board is what we need to 
aim for. And technologies will feed into this on every step of the way. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree on all things except your timeline. I must be an optimist because I'm definitely bringing that timeline for offsite construction, modular in um, modular solutions, all methods of modern or modern methods of construction. I, I'm not looking at 2040 and 2050. I'm absolutely, resolutely looking at 2030. Um, but again, I, I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right in terms of definitely all the, the offsite construction and modularity because that's happening today as well. I, I think to go into the more uh, futuristic elements like all the use of robotics and everything that's a bit more conceptual now, we'll have to wait a bit longer. But for sure, for MNCs, yeah, we would hope for 2030. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Angelica, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for your consistently great commentary and um, and content coming out on the sector. I genuinely appreciate you joining us today for our first show back of 2021. That was Angelica Donati, PropTech expert and Forbes contributor. So that's it from us today on Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on sound and show producer Katie Talon of Hear Me Aurora Media. We're back at the same time next week from myself, Carol Talon, and all the team here. Stay safe.